The Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Lessons in Leadership. Four Stars, America STEM 2020. A professional development seminar. Featuring Vice President of Public Sector Strategy for Worldwide Technology Incorporated, retired Lieutenant General Robert Farrell, and Director of the Gary Sinise Foundation, retired General Vincent K. Brooks. Strategic discussion with senior leaders from the Army, Air Force, and or other Department of Defense organizations about the opportunities and threats faced by our nation in the STEM arena. Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Lessons in Leadership, Four Stars, America STEM 2020. Featuring retired Lieutenant General Robert Farrell and retired General Vincent K. Brooks. Two theater armies, one combined joint and multinational co command of over 620,000 men and women culminating in his assignment there in Korea. Overall, General Brooks served for 16 years as a general officer. Today, General Brooks is the director of the Gary Sinise Foundation, and he is also a visiting senior fellow at the Harvard University Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And he's also a distinguished fellow at the University of Texas, and I can go on and on and on. But I'm very honored to welcome General Brooks today. As uh, Sonia talked about, we're gonna talk about leadership at the four-star level in STEMs and the ch command uh, challenges that we have in this arena. Again, General Brooks. So how's everybody doing today? Uh, it's really my joy to be able to share some thoughts with you, but uh, also to be up here with Bob Farrell, who's a, a tremendous, tremendous leader uh, by every way that you can express such uh, whether it's his troop leadership or his uh, institutional leadership or his personal leadership, his example. I kid him a little bit uh, because he's the only one who has somehow learned how to get younger in retirement. The rest of us got older. But he uh, just has a passion for people and has made tremendous impacts in, uh, in all that he's done, especially some of the mentoring work, not to, not to, to uh, in any way, reduce the impacts he's had as a professional. So Bob, it's a joy to be with you, and uh, uh, thanks so much for, for teeing this up and for hosting it. I uh, had a very interesting journey, as Bob said, from that time I entered the military academy back in 1976. It was a historic class. It was the first one that included women. And uh, some of those are in here, so I see Pat Locke in here, so I got to call her out, the first African-American female graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and proud classmate. And it was a very historic time, but that was just the beginning of the journey. So what I want to do today is talk to you a little bit about leadership at the four-star level, but it's really leadership getting to the four-star level and why STEM matters. So I'll, I'll do this by just sharing some vignettes from my life story and my journey. And uh, I, I hope that that serves to illustrate the points that we're talking about. But by the end, I... It's my expectation you walk out with a view that STEM does indeed matter, as it has for me. 
So if you'll bear with me for a little while, we'll uh, chat and then I'll be looking for some questions from you to see what you really want to talk about. All right, let's advance this here and see if we got working. Yep. Okay. So pictures are worth a thousand words and there's a whole lot of pictures. Let me back up on that. Okay, thanks. Pictures are worth a thousand words. There's a lot of pictures up there. So I don't have that many words, but I'll just try to share a little bit of the story. If we start in the upper left-hand corner, this is what uh, General Farrell just talked about a few minutes ago. That was Cadet Vincent Brooks, once upon a time. That was in my senior year, but it was at the, the fourth year of a STEM education. And really, everything that preceded that time at West Point, for me and my family tradition, was also college preparatory and STEM-oriented. And so I've benefited from this educational program to prepare me to enter the United States Military Academy. I think it's important to recognize that the early part of STEM education is about preparation. And the door was, in fact, unlocked to me, as it had been for my brother, who went a year before me, and we entered into that great institution, which happens to have been, this is a little-known fact, and I want to make sure our midshipmen know this, the first school in the United States to award an engineering degree. So it's our, it's our oldest engineering school in the United States. Sorry about that. It wasn't Annapolis. I just had to say that. Uh, and that was back in 1817. The school was actually started by the Corps of Engineers and began to produce engineers for our nation, awarding degrees by 1817. So to go there, is, and certainly during that era, of the late 70s and the beginning of the 1980s, it was a STEM education, believe me, very heavy in science, technology, engineering, and math. Now, the nature of technology changed quite a bit, and we thought we were pretty high speed because we were learning how to do Fortran coding and using punch cards in an automated computer that actually moved those cards really quickly. And that was high speed at the time. It was cutting edge, but obviously, Technology moves on, and people have to move on with it, and in fact, advance it. But I learned a lot during that time, uh, being immersed in the STEM culture and environment of the Military Academy at West Point. We didn't have majors, academic majors at the time. We could have areas of concentration. So everyone took a core curriculum for all four years, and you had some opportunities to vary from that. For me, it was aerospace engineering, and with a, a subset of that on helicopter engineering. So I was uh, studying the heavy, heavy duty stuff, engineering sciences and the applied physics and applied mathematics that, that go along with that. Candidly, I'm not sure how I got there. I, I, I did always have a passion for that, but at West Point, it, that's a tough set of courses uh, to be able to pursue. I was good with uh, other courses as well, but given that family tradition of pursuing excellence and always challenging yourself to go further, I chose to go into the harder direction instead of cruising and snoozing, as the, uh, the terminology used to be, where I could just uh, rack up some more academic points. I probably should have done that. My grade point would have been higher and my standing would have been higher, but it didn't hurt me at all. In fact, prepared me very, very well, as I hope to uh, illustrate. So the first picture is uh, Cadet Vincent Brooks, the Cadet Brigade First Captain. That was the real start of my journey in leadership being responsible for all 4,500 cadets at the U.S. Military Academy and in that singular position as the cadet brigade commander. Uh, so that was my first star. As you can see, it was a star on my sleeve. I wasn't a general. I was a cadet. But sometimes I thought I was a general. And the captains on the staff 
who were much junior to generals in the military, made sure that I knew that I was much junior to them. Uh, the, the second picture really is about the end of my journey. So from Cadet Brooks to General Brooks and everything in between was lessons and lessons and lessons and lessons in leadership and in the importance of STEM. I mentioned that we were at the first class with women, so you see that. Can everyone see this pointer? Okay, that's I'm pointing west, so it's a west pointer. That was slow. Y'all were slow. Come on, stay with me. But uh, that particular picture is uh, two of my classmates as we're walking off the parade field right before graduation. And I, I show that for several reasons. One was uh, one of those is a, a woman who was the top-ranking cadet at that time. She was my uh, brigade executive officer. And the person beside her, uh, leading in, in front of the three, was the brigade uh, supply officer and a good friend also. They're dear friends. I actually lived with them after I graduated for a while. I didn't realize that they had a thing going. They said they didn't, but they ended up getting married and produced five kids that went to the U.S. Military Academy and got further immersed in engineering and science. But they're both engineers. So this is to say, if you don't believe that I did some engineering, at least I can say some of my best friends are engineers. Uh, one went on, well, both of them went on to uh, outstanding Army Corps of Engineers careers, but they were both also instructors and academics. And even now, uh, they retired in Boston and Cambridge. Uh, Kathy Gerard Snook, who's in the middle, became a professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Applied Mathematics. And Scott Snook, her husband, is a professor at the Harvard Business School. They had the same foundation, and they were really good at it, too, which allowed them to go into the Corps of Engineers and apply that along the way. So we're all experiencing that. I had the privilege of commanding a number of times, and Bob laid that out as he was uh, going through the introduction. And the privilege of command is an extraordinary one in our nation, and things you're allowed to do and allowed to decide, and the responsibility that you carry. And I was blessed to be able to do that multiple times, as you can see. Each time you see those flags being passed or a bunch of flags behind me, those are different levels of command. And whether it's uh, the small units, at the beginning of my career where there's 25 to 30 people, or at the end where there's over 600,000 underneath the responsibility. It was quite a journey in leadership. I learned a lot about myself, and I also learned a lot about where STEM fits in. I'm coming to that. I'm coming to it. I'll talk to it. Uh, in the center, I happened to get called to do a very unique position at the start of the war with Iraq in 2003. It was a very visible position. There was science and technology behind that, what we decided to say every day, how we understood communication and the conduits through which information flows to an international public, how to arrange things in a physical sense that have provide evidence to others as to what was really going on. And there was a very technical aspect of that that was happening behind the scenes in communication technology as well. That's what it looked like on the front of the scenes. Some of you heard about the famous 55 uh, cards. That is not Saddam Hussein's face on there. I never showed his face and never spoke his name, just to let him know that he no longer existed. And people were watching, okay? So he would notice that. But there's only one deck of cards. The, the media tried to get it from me. They didn't get it. But they did use computer technology, got scans of it, because we were required to release it after I showed it. So we scanned each card, and they were being sold within two days. I didn't get a dime off of that. I just want you to know that. I have had the privilege to be uh, recognized by foreign leaders and 
you know, to the left of that picture uh, on the red carpet is meeting the top of the Vietnamese armed forces. And he wears a lot of red because it was the North Vietnamese once upon a time that carried my father away two times. But to be able to meet and to close the gap with the former enemy required certain skills. That doesn't look like science and technology, but there's some science and technology that's beneath it. Uh, being honored by Japan beneath that and on the far side by the Republic of Korea with, uh, with honors they had, these are things that come to leaders and commanders, but they only come from having achieved excellence, and the excellence comes from STEM. Don't worry, I'm coming to it. Down at the bottom, I had the privilege of serving directly four different presidents, and this is particularly during my time in the Republic of Korea. So on the left, President Park first woman to be president of the Republic of Korea, a democratic country. Her father had been president as well, so she's a second-generation president. President Barack Obama, who uh, gave me my orders and put me in a position, sitting next to that, that's in the Oval Office, as he gave me my, my instructions. President Donald Trump, as he came to visit Korea in the winter of 2017, when we thought we might be going to war, but had suddenly turned a corner, and there's some stem behind that. And then finally on the right, President Moon Jae-in, the president currently of the Republic of Korea. Two of those presidents faced impeachment. Both of those presidents, all those presidents were parts of democracies and being able to stand with them and to try to keep North Korea from tipping things over was our challenge during the time 2016 to 2017. So I say all that to just tell you that these are the experiences that I had, but what you need to understand is what is behind that? How is it that we were able to achieve success in areas that are out there? And I'll give you some vignettes to try to illustrate that now. So STEM helps you approach solving problems in a very different way. Now I'll give you some verbals first and then I'll allude to some of these, uh, these images. I, I was on a deployment to Kosovo in the year 2001. We left in April and came back in November. As you can imagine, 9-11 happened in the middle of that. And we were dealing with very difficult circumstances there that included insurgent activity happening inside of Kosovo itself, ethno-sectarian violence, and insurgency being exported from Kosovo into the adjacent countries of the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia to the south and Serbia proper, that which was left of Yugoslavia to the east. Albanian insurgents would cross over, pick up weapons, fight, get wounded, and come back as refugees. And humanitarian organizations at the border would take good care of them until they were ready to go back into the fight, not knowing that they were turning insurgents. And so my, my unit's task was to try to find out what was really going on there. Who is it that's doing this, and how do we interrupt it? Because it's destabilizing the region we're trying to bring peace to. I sent out a patrol of a couple of soldiers. Actually, it was a reconnaissance unit, but inside of it, two soldiers split out on a particular patrol to ascend a very steep uh, mountainous area on the border between Macedonia and Kosovo. As they were doing that, they encountered some technology a personnel landmine that had been laid out there from previous wars. We didn't know it was there, but they were now in the middle of a minefield. Two of them, the first thing that happens is the sergeant gets the lower part of his right leg blown off, traumatically amputated because he's the one that stepped on the mine. And his private 
who's only partially trained. You know, that's what sergeants do is they train soldiers to become more professional and maybe eventually they become sergeants and leaders themselves. But it's a sergeant and a private. And now the boss has just had his leg traumatically amputated. Because it was on a hillside, no one could get to them. And it was in a minefield. So first he encounters technology that can do ill. That's the landmine. He begins to apply a tourniquet. It was the best we had at the time. We learned a few years later that it would be much better. Tourniquets can be worn differently. They can be attached differently. If you have other injuries, you don't have to apply as much energy to it because somebody was evaluating the technology after the incident that took his leg. It required a medical evacuation helicopter to come in using digital technology to find their location after they reported their location, breaking radio silence. This is technology on technology on technology. They couldn't land because the slope was like this, and it was heavily forested. They couldn't even lower themselves to jump out. So they had to lower a hoist, more technology. Technology that was fitted on the side of the helicopter to descend down and pick up one of the soldiers. Actually, what they did first was descend a mother of three who happened to be a combat medic. And she came down that, that, uh, that, that hoist hanging on a piece of wire with confidence in the technology that had been created for her. When she got to the ground, she lost her balance and her aid bag fell off and rolled further into the minefield. And she went and got it and came back uphill through a minefield, as we discovered later when we cleared the entire area. She, she happened to walk past two additional mines to get to the soldier, stabilize him, and get them out. A few months later, after 9-11, we were back at our home station of Fort Stewart, Georgia. The unit was unknowingly preparing for what would happen in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq, and it was the lead unit that actually went in. But at that point in time, as you return to home station, you do some of the things you can't do when you're deployed. And one of those things was the tradition that cavalry units have, this was a cavalry reconnaissance troop, of earning one's spurs. You've heard that expression. Well, they actually still do that in the cavalry. And it was a deliberate technical skills evaluation, physical challenge over several days. And usually your sergeant is the one who takes you through. Well, for Private Beavers, his sergeant had been evacuated. And his last recollection of him was trying to help save his life. At the end of the award ceremony, there he was, ready to receive his spurs. And in the room walks his sergeant, wearing two shoes. Because he's already been fitted with a prosthetic that made it possible for him to not only walk, but to be there to put spurs on his soldier. Technology made it possible to do that. Bionics made it possible to do that. And of course, determination that the humans bring to bear and tie all those things back together. It was an amazing moment. I happened to be there that night, and I'll never forget that. Uh, a few years later, I was on the Baghdad streets as the deputy commander of the main force in Baghdad. And we certainly know about the violent actions that happened as things got worse and worse through 2006 and led to what's now called the surge in 2007 and 2008. And our good friend General Lloyd Austin was in command for two parts of that. But I happened to be there right in the middle of it, in the middle of the hot area of Baghdad. And while the physical actions 
which also included technology being applied in interesting and deadly ways. While that's well understood, what's not as well understood is how you reduce the conditions that lead to instability and insurgency. And so part of my portfolio as a deputy commander was to find the problems inside of the area, medical issues, health issues, sewer, water, electricity, trash, and begin to solve it because the government had been toppled and the technocrats no longer had the ability to make the government move and people were suffering and it was creating a cesspool of dissatisfaction that fed insurgency, insurrection, and violence, and external influence for that matter. So I had that portfolio and I had to rely on things that I learned as a cadet at West Point. You know, you can't just fix the one pump station that isn't working. If you haven't also worked on the lift station, if you haven't also worked on the connections between it, if you haven't joined the electricity to run both the pump station and the lift station, if you don't have a destination for the waste when it, I never knew I was supposed to know so much about moving sewage <laughs> as a Brigadier General. But I had learned a lot of that, especially systems engineering at West Point. The idea of joining things together in a logical sequence to cause them to then work properly in relation to one another. STEM made it possible for us to lower the temperature in Baghdad and begin to protect the population and separate them from the negative influences. Who would have thought that? You're going to combat in Baghdad, it's a bad time, and I'm thinking about STEM because that's what prepared me. Not only that, I, re I recall being on a route clearance mission. It, it, it was important for generals to share danger with the troops. And we get to move around a lot, but we don't sit in, in palaces alone. Our headquarters might be there, but that's not where the general's person is supposed to be. The general's supposed to be out inspiring, assessing, leading, understanding, impacting, making relationships, solving problems. And so every now and then, I would just go out and share some danger. And I joined a group of engineers. We'd given them the mission of clearing the dangerous routes that were becoming laden with improvised explosive devices, these adaptations of technology to create death and damage even against the great United States military forces. And they'd have to go out there and find it before anyone else came out. Pretty dangerous job when you're going looking for danger. Sometimes the mines found them and their vehicles would get destroyed. Thank God there were, there were good technologies where the vehicle itself would disintegrate but wouldn't injure, other than blast effect, wouldn't injure the soldiers inside. So I decided to share that with them. We went on a route clearance and there we are. We sense something is there. First, the human eye being the first and most important piece of technology when system engineered to join with the brain sensed that something wasn't right. So we stopped, established security, got out closer, and saw something that didn't look right. Then we backed up, deployed a robot, put it on the ground, and sent it forward. And it detonated, carrying explosives, put it in place, activated the charge, came back away from the uh, explosive location, the robot took protection and we detonated it. 
Then we will move forward and cleared the route using remote arms where the soldiers didn't have to get out of the vehicle themselves, but were underneath of armor protection and blast protection, specially configured vehicles. The technology was saving lives. I got to witness that technology firsthand on that mission and on others. So we can't take for granted how even things like going to war are impacted by technologies. It's not just about the bullets. It's not just about the missiles, the aircraft, the helicopters, the night vision goggles. That's important too, critical technology, but it's all these other things. We got to see that there, robotics being put in place. We were developing military camps because we were growing so quickly. We couldn't use the infrastructure that we would normally have used where we would bring contractors in to build up small cities wherever we were. And so once again, we're into the sewage business of building facultative ponds and letting nature actually separate layers of waste from actually good water and using that again. A lot of science being done. So the lower left-hand picture is some time on the streets in, in Baghdad. We're trying to a secure arrest of area using those same techniques that I just talked about. The lower right-hand corner is a few years later. 2010, we're back there in Iraq again. Now the situation has changed, and we're trying to now get international oil companies into Iraq to begin to restore the, the energy sector in Iraq, which would have an impact on the rest of the world. And I found myself out in oil fields, applying some of the sciences that I'd learned even as a cadet the geological sciences that are associated with that, the technological aspects of how you drill in that kind of environment, the depth that you have to go to to find it. Hmm. All good lessons. Let me roll on a little bit here. While I was in Korea, we faced some crises, and it became very important for us to think our way through, how do you solve this problem? So we had Chinese fishing boats coming into the contested waters between North Korea and South Korea, literally riding between their guns pointed at each other into a river estuary that is part of the demilitarized zone and therefore had not had any fishing activity since the early 1950s. It was a nature habitat because of that. Had the best crabs and the best fish because no one was killing them. No one was taking them to market. And the Chinese found out about it and began to penetrate right between those two. They made a deal with the North Koreans so that the North Koreans wouldn't bother them, but the South Korean fishermen were highly agitated by this because they were obeying the rules. And they went to President Park and said, you better do something or we will. They began to attack Chinese fishing boats. Clashes were happening on the boats between fishermen, hitting each other with gaffs and hooks. And this was a crisis now because the president has to do something about this, but she doesn't have the authority to act in there. Actually, I did as the United Nations commander because it's part of the demilitarized zone of Korea. So we organized a special patrol that you see in the lower right-hand corner, using South Korean maritime patrol boats from their Coast Guard, having South Korean Marines board it, putting United Nations observers aboard, and putting the blue flag on it, giving it the authority to, to do enforcement in that area. And with messages in Chinese and in Korean and in English, we would broadcast to these fishing boats. The fishing boats are like the ones you see in the upper left-hand corner. They would come into this area, shallow waters, drop out nets with weights on them, let the fish and crabs move into them, and then drag the weight and just rake up everything that was in there, destroying the ecology 
science, ecology in that area. So how do we solve this problem? The initial choice to solve it was go attack them and run them off. You got military boats out there. Let's let's go in. Let's do some some warning shots. Let's let's warn them with, with with machine guns. And I imposed and said that's not the way to solve the problem. I had a discussion with people in my headquarters and used a different kind of science: bathymetry, oceanography. Here's the way we solve the problem. First, I put rules on them and said you cannot close with those fishing vessels any closer than 100 yards. This is only about two miles across. First, because I don't want you closing toward North Korea, where North Korea opens fire on those boats, which they would do. What I want you to do is approach in low tide, or right before the tide goes out. So we looked at the tidal times, because it's a tidal plain area that changes four or five feet, and there are mud flats beneath it. And so we would approach them, expecting that their reaction would be, flee toward the North Korean coast, so they would move north to the north side of it. Well, we knew that that's where there were greater mudflats. And so we'd approach just before the tide would go out. They, true enough, would raise anchor, leave the nets, and move north. Then we would wait. The tide would go out, and we'd cut their nets and drop them to the bottom. So we did that over several days until they began to lose revenue, and those boats turned around and left. There were 300 a day that we were dealing with. It had risen over two years from about 10 or 15 a day to 300 a day. Big problem. And we were able to solve it without a shot fired using science, a different science that you would not expect. STEM matters. STEM helps you to think differently about problems. I'm almost there. Some of you may recognize this area with the blue buildings at the top. That's uh, Panmunjom. That's where the Truce Village is in Korea, and it's really the symbol of the division between the two. The large gray building that you see is in North Korea. The blue buildings are three meeting rooms. The middle of the building separates North and South Korea, literally in the room on the conference table. The picture is taken from a similar building to the gray one on the South Korean side. It's a really big building. It's a few inches taller than the other one, just so that they can say they're bigger than the North Korean side. Inside of there, there's great tension. Well, we were working to try to get North Korea to move in a different direction. 2016 and 2017, the campaign of maximum pressure, the threats of fire and fury, all the things that you saw and heard. And we didn't know if we would end up at war or not. Or not. And of course, we had to prepare our military technologies for that. But our desire was to create enough pressure that North Korea would go in a different direction and choose diplomacy, which they did. So diplomacy emerged in the spring of 2018 as we prepared ourselves for the first summit between the Korean president and the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. You're listening to Lessons in Leadership, Four Stars, America STEM 2020, a professional development seminar featuring retired Lieutenant General Robert Farrell and retired General Vincent K. Brooks. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bayes STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, and YouTube. We came to Panmunjom, an area controlled by me as the United Nations commander. That's why you see the, the blue in there. That was one of my three hats representing that blue flag of the United Nations. And they're walking on a blue bridge that's above an uncleared minefield, but it's about the distance from here to the wall to North Korea. And it runs parallel to it, and it's a place where troops in a barracks in one area can run into the central part of the negotiating area without having to walk through an uncleared minefield. Well, the bridge was as wide as you see it in the left picture, and that's myself and the then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for South Korea, he's now the Minister of Defense, proofing the bridge because we decided it's too narrow for the two leaders to walk side by side, and we want the image of the two of them walking together. And so we brought out engineers, and did a little bit of civil engineering, and changed the structure of that bridge. Didn't have to change the base of it, we just made it three planks wider because Kim Jong-un deserves three more planks. He's a big fella. And so there we are proving it, and then 10 days later, there are the two leaders walking in the same spot on the same bridge, now wider. That's where history is made. Civil engineering and creativity is what changed the environment. STEM matters. STEM matters. The lower left-hand corner is what we encountered when I got there in 2016. Those are North Korean soldiers with a camera standing at that dividing line, and South Korean soldiers facing them, but with their backs to you. And my back is to their back. And so standing seven or eight feet away from the North Korean soldiers who are armed with the Secretary of State. So I cut that out of the picture because that's not the important part. It's the standoff face-to-face that was that close, that exact same spot is where President Trump is standing with Kim Jong-un right now, as he came in 2019. So the technologies and the creativity led to that bridge, which then led to summits, which then led to that picture on the right. We went from a standoff now to discussion. We're back in standoff again, but for a while, it was going in a different direction, and STEM helped us get there. So this is the last thing I'll talk about, and then roll it up so we can have some questions. Some of you may have witnessed this as it occurred in the summer of 2018. Because of the pictures you saw in the previous chart, the door opened to dialogue with North Korea for the first time in many years. Military to military dialogue at the general officer level, using a a U.S. Air Force two-star, my chief of staff, opened for the first time in seven years. We had not had a general officer level conversation with North Korea but the door opened. And our pursuit was to repatriate the remains of our warriors who never came home, who were still held in North Korea, expected to be deceased, but their remains were still there nevertheless. And North Korea agreed. And instead of exchanging them at the traditional place between those three buildings, the same spot where President Trump and Kim Jong-un stood, that's where we had historically repatriated. They said, this time you have to come into North Korea. Maybe they were testing our resolve. And we said, okay, we will, but we're bringing a U.S. Air Force aircraft to do it. It will not be a commercial aircraft. And after we fought with each other and insulted each other, as is par for the course when you're doing these kind of negotiations, they agreed to allow us to fly a U.S. C-17 aircraft. The first time a U.S. 
military jet has entered North Korea since 1953. Just happened in 2018. And we landed there to receive 55 boxes that would take the remains of the fallen back to South Korea and then on to the United States for identification. We didn't know who they were, but we knew that they fought underneath that UN flag. So that's why you see that. And you see us doing an honor carry once we received them in South Korea, and then in the lower left-hand corner, transferring them again to the traditional case and delivering them to Hawaii where the vice president received them. 55 boxes. So there's a math problem in the lower right-hand corner. True or false? If you can't see it, I'll call it out to you. 55 times 1 equals 250. Is that true? Depends. Depends on which science you're talking about. If you're talking about the science of mathematics, it is false. If you're, the, if you're talking about the, the science of genetics, it's true. So at this point, those 55 boxes have all been gone through with the bone fragments commingled as they were inside of there and deteriorated with decades, 250 people genetically identified. And 170 of them are likely Americans just based on genome sequences. If we didn't have the science and technology of genetics applied to this activity, they would just be dirt in 55 boxes. But now their families get to have closure. 44 of them have been identified specifically with a DNA match. So just since 2018, this is the largest return we've ever had from any battlefield in the world. Quietly done, science and technology matters. So what do we get from all this? And then we get to questions, and hopefully we're teed up and ready for that. What sciences did I work through here? I, I touched on only a few of them, but all of these emerged during my career. Application of every single one of those, not in the order of appearance, as you saw them in this briefing, but it's like putting up the cast at the end of a movie. The end of my movie has all of these sciences, all these applications inside of there that I was exposed to along the way or had to apply in order to achieve what we did throughout that 42-year journey. I believe that STEM education does matter, big time. It matters because it changes the way you think. It changes the way you address everything that you encounter in life. And that's why this conference is so important. And that's why it's so critical for us to continue to emphasize STEM education and STEM application for our society. Our nation depends on us doing it. The world is not going to get simpler for us. It's going to become more challenging. If we're not leading, we're chasing. So thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to your questions. I just have to say, wow. You couldn't get this on PBS. Uh, sir, first of all, on behalf of everyone here, uh, thank you for telling your story, your journey, um, and also on behalf of everyone here in our nation, just want to say thank you for your service. Just give them a round of applause. So as the former CIO G6, and you talked about, um, you know, that 
change happens all the time. Technology moves at rapid speed. How can we, um, in the U.S. military, recruit and retain the next best talent? Uh, first, we have to recognize its importance, and that's not to be taken for granted. The recognition is not to be taken for granted. We have to resource it. So how our nation organizes for these types of programs, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, critically important. We're under-resourced for that right now. But uh, for the military particularly, I think, and I learned this as the chief of public affairs, one of the other experiences that I had that didn't, I didn't put up, but I was the chief of public affairs for the Army and had to help the Army learn how to communicate itself to its own public, the true board of directors. And we were struggling with that. We weren't doing it as well as we wanted to. We just suffered two injuries to our reputation through very unfortunate incidents like the Pat Tillman accidental uh, fratricide and also the Abu Ghraib incident. Well, how we communicate ourselves is really important. It's, it's the military that helped to build the Panama Canal. It's the military that cleared the routes to the West and made our economy expand. It's the military that put us into space. And the military doesn't say that because we're selfless and we serve our nation. But at some point, we have to make that clear so that people don't misunderstand who and what the U.S. military is for the United States of America. The technologies that are used to, to take care of wounds in combat or to treat illnesses help us to wipe out pandemics. Malaria, influenza, these both occurred on military installations or in military operations. And their solutions also came from, this is the cradle of innovation and change for our nation. It always has been. So we have to say that and let people know that if you want to advance science and technology and engineering and applying mathematics, the very best place in our society that concentrates on it all the time is the U.S. military. I think that's the way that we can recruit differently. Well, thank you, sir. I'm going to open up to the audience for questions and see if you have any questions for General Brooks. Okay, uh, sir, thank you so much for uh, such an illustrative um, uh, presentation. So one of the things that you mentioned is the movement of technology and that technology moves and people somehow catch up. So as we live in this age that a lot of scholars call the fourth industrial revolution where we have a lot of artificial intelligence coming on board, and we, if we teach machines, as you future cast and you think about leadership, you know, what are those competencies needed for leaders in an artificial intelligence um, arena? What, may some, what might be some of those things that we could learn from machines so that we could be better leaders and more um, virtuous people? How many of you are Star Trekkies? Okay, you gotta be older than 50, I guess, apparently, to, to, to be real Trekkies. Some may remember an episode where Captain Kirk encounters this being named Landru. I am Landru. And what does Captain Kirk ultimately say to cause the machine self-destruct? You are a machine. Landru didn't know it was a machine until the human told it. So the first thing we ought to understand about artificial intelligence is we are an image of a greater intelligence and AI is an image of us. It is lesser. Now, that doesn't mean it can't resolve issues and matters and 
come up with solutions faster than we as individuals can, but collectively, it cannot. So that's the first thing. Let's not create 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was another one of those movies from back in the old days when topics like artificial intelligence were just emerging. And of course, Hollywood always has skill in taking what could happen and making it into a movie that scares the devil out of you, okay? So 2001 Space Odyssey had the same sort of dynamic. But we don't have to be afraid of artificial intelligence either. So I'm a, I'm a believer that artificial intelligence, machine learning, can accelerate things that then come back to humans and allow humans to decide and act in a different way because we're the ones who cause the world to move in a way or not. God gives us grace and gives us capability and then we do our own thing with it. And so we move things into improvement or into destruction. That's what humans do. But how we decide might be better informed. Where we intended to do good, but we actually did bad. An industrial revolution was intended to be good, but now it has had effect on the environment. How do we then repair the environment without then losing the ability to have quality of life? So these have to be related to each other somehow, and we might need the assistance of machines to reveal things to us that we might not otherwise get. I do worry a little bit though, and I'll tell you, and that is that if we put too much reliance on machines, we will atrophy, that's a biological science term, we will atrophy our own capacity, and then maybe we will not be superior to the machines. Ask your kids to do that same multiplication problem 55 times one. How long will it take for them to answer? Will they reach for their pocket? Because that's the extension of their mind. And if it is, are we in danger? So we've got work to do to make sure that machines are harnessed and moved forward, but that we don't lose our own ability to keep up with those machines and keep informing them. Okay. Hi, sir. Um, El Varela, and um, thank you, um, Mr. Brooks. I actually served under him under uh, Pacific Pathways at a 25th ID in USFK. I'm a, I'm a product of his great work. Um, but I, it was a very humbling experience, specifically about Pathways, and that's why I wanted to bring it up on your opinion of it. Um, the, the importance of being ready, relevant, and resilient, um, and the ability to ensure that we are adaptive and um, with our adversaries, and as well as those that are in the civilian sector as well. Uh, one of my humbling experiences with when I traveled between Australia, Malaysia, and Indonesia, and I worked with their service forces. I was a signalier then, and I was as an S6. Um, I was a F-853 information system engineer, and um, so I'm very familiar with you too, sir. <laughs> um, but there was one particular mission that we did in um, Indonesia, and um, we, we, we worked with uh, the signaliers there of the host nation, and we did a very lateral mission together. I stood up the talk, stood up the systems, deployed them out, it was great. Um, we knocked it out in three days. It was amazing, operational. And uh, the Malaysian army did the same exact thing, but they were done in an hour. Um, because they went back to basics, because we didn't, they didn't need all the technology to get things done. They used a carrier pigeon, and they got the mission done. They understood, had better situational awareness, and they were able to effectively get things done immediately. And I think we're kind of losing a bit of that scope as we go too far in advance. I teach knowledge management. Uh, we need to come back and understand physical requirements, but Understanding these international practices and understanding how fast they accomplish the same tasks and the risk that they were willing to take, making those changes in the service is really hard. Um, I guess you're, 
what is what is your opinion in regards to um, helping shape these these requirements so they're more adaptive and relevant, um, so that we could be more still still steering and spearheading the way ahead across across the nation. Um, and it was a beautiful thing to watch them all. But that's all I have for. Thanks, Ellis. And trust me, I benefited from your good work. So thanks for being part of that and for making it happen. It was a success because of what you did, not because of the idea I came up with. Pacific Pathways is really just the, 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 the term of art we decided to use. It's the brand name, if you will, for projecting US Army forces out into the Pacific region, particularly in the, Southwest, uh, the Southeast Asia area, where we don't have presence. US military's presence is really residual from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. It's in Northeast Asia, so Okinawa, Guam, Japan, Korea. And our interests are pulling us to Southeast Asia. So first, being able to appreciate that, understanding the geography and the economy that goes with that, drove us to find an innovative way to get there. So Pacific Pathways was all about innovation, finding a new way to achieve the same end, which is presence, influence, relationships, and readiness. And that's what we did. So we designed it. And if you want to talk about more of that, we can talk about it after the session is over. I'll be happy to dig in more deeply. But to your point, by doing that and touching multiple militaries, first we broke the mold of being so accustomed to the Iraqis or the Afghanis that we presume that all militaries are like that. And our approach to foreign militaries requires us to do the same things. And in reality, we learned that each military has unique culture and unique capabilities to solve problems like that. They may not be as technologically advanced as we do. So it drove, uh, certainly in my headquarters, us to talk at places like the Armed Forces Communications and Electronic Agency uh, 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 Association about the importance of not losing sight of the trailing edge of our technology while we're advancing the leading edge of our technology because we're going to go into operations with allies and partners and they will not be in the same place we are technologically. So first we have to always make sure that there's a trailing edge and that's mostly about interfacing. How do you create an interface where the come as you are communications from Malaysia, Indonesia, or Singapore will interface with our very advanced systems that are digitized. And that is not so simple. That's, that's hard work that Bob Farrell was wrestling with and solved many problems, and then we created more problems for him. That's what field commanders do. So first is recognizing that, calling for it in the designs of things, creating structures for it, and then doing what, what Ellis and his unit did, solving it on the ground. And then you can create a, an, an electronic analog to that or an emulator of the human behavior that solved the problem. So you gave a good example. I'll give one more that came all the way up to the four-star level, the problem solving that was being done on the ground. We had technological interoperability with the radios that Indonesia had. Foreign military sales made that possible. So we had the same radios, but we couldn't communicate. Why? language. Okay, We had the same doctrine because they had studied with us when we restored our relationship with the Indonesian military. So our doctrine was evident in their military practice. So we had procedural interoperability. But we needed this last part, which was the human connection. So people like Ellis solved the problem by, you get someone who speaks Indonesian, Bahasa sitting right beside the lieutenant, 
from the Indonesian military who's talking to the radio that comes to the captain from the U.S. military who has someone who speaks English who is an Indonesian sitting beside him. We human connected that with two people who spoke both languages sitting with the two leaders at the ends of the radio. And by the way, we did that one level higher also. So it went from platoon up to battalion, two levels higher, using that same method. Can we create an electronic analog for that? Probably so. It's an interface device of some sort. It's a, it's a protocol droid. Hollywood may have led us on that. You have something that can automatically interface. Critically important. Great lesson that came out of that. Thanks so much. Any uh, space scientists out there? All right, there's one in the back. So you're going to have to explain this at the end as uh, General Johnson's coming up. But we actually applied the Hohmann transfer orbit. I studied space mechanics, too. That was one of the strange things I studied. To the approach that we use for communicating and advancing our agenda into Washington and in Seoul and internationally in 2018. It's a beautiful chart that does this and it talks about the sequencing of time and how to move from the altitude where we are to a higher altitude which then lets us relay off of something else that we knew was on the horizon to get there. It's the same scientific method for leaving Earth orbit and getting to the moon and returning. Hohmann transfer orbit. Look it up. Okay, General Johnson, please, sir. Sir, thanks for your comments. You, uh, you've left Korea, but I'm sure you haven't left Korea. Like when I left the Corps, I never left. Coronavirus is huge. Yeah. Uh, as we read about what the impact of corona has on Apple supply chain and students at Georgia Tech are trying to figure out the overall impact. Can you talk to us about, if you were the commander in Korea today, what the impact of the coronavirus would be upon our interface and interaction with uh, the Chinese military. Okay. Because it's moving so rapidly in the region, thanks for the question, uh, it would require us to think not only about the Chinese, but also with everyone around them. China has quite a bit of commercial travel that happens now. I flew myself from, from Korea into China or from Hawaii into China and, and uh, done things in several different areas in China with the People's Liberation Army as a four-star. If I were in the, either of the two last positions I had, Commander of U.S. Army Forces in all of the Pacific or Commander of U.S. Forces in Korea, both of those would be affected by this. Task one would be try to provide whatever protections we can to our own people, the people for whom we're responsible. And that would be challenging. So that's more about putting out public health notices and using command information to get that across, using technologies to reach people and let them know what to do if they suspect that they have an issue. Because when something like this happens, people begin to suspect that anything that's happening to them is related to what may become a pandemic crisis. That's the first thing, to inform, to create calm and appropriate response. Secondly, I would candidly be very opportunistic. If we're looking for an an opening of some sort. There's an expression in Washington, never pass up a good crisis. And that's true. You can do a lot of good, by the way. This is not about hurting somebody. This is about not being able to help when you want to help, but when someone needs help, being there to help. Okay? So we did a lot of work with disaster response throughout the Indo-Asia Pacific region. And each time we responded, people appreciated that we cared enough to try to help. 
and it deepens the relationships we have that will matter in other days for other things. So I would be opportunistic about it. North Korea is going to have a problem with this. Can we engage on a humanitarian basis? Well, that's how we got the remains back. It was really through humanitarian, and that may be less constrained by sanctions in a maximum pressure program. So I would be posturing to fly into North Korea again with a C-17, this time loaded with medical capability. I would also be trying to work as much as possible to help the South Koreans because they too are going to have a, a, a public health concern with the frequency of travel that they have between the two countries. Chinese tourism is a major part of the South Korean soft economy. Their technological economy is their hard economy and it's massive, but tourism is very important and most of it comes from China. How do they take care of that without crashing their economy? If you just shut it down and say, okay, no more Chinese flights, which they may have to do, what you're saying is, okay, no more commerce. Okay, no more revenue. Okay, no more tax income. Okay, no more 10th largest economy in the world. That's what happens in South Korea. So we would be posturing to help them think through that, to make sure that it doesn't go very far. It has already revealed itself, but to make sure it doesn't go very far. Very much like our good friend General Daryl Williams, who's now at uh, the superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy, did in Africa as we started seeing Ebola move as quickly as it did. His actions there in Africa reassured and stemmed the issue, halted the issue. That's a double M, stemmed the issue. Please. Hi, General. Thanks so much for being here. Um, so I'm one of the space scientists that you pointed in the back there. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know. Don't kill you me now. No, no, no. I'm a, more of an engineer. Right? All right. Good. We, we call that the slingshot effect. Yes. Right? <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. Right. Uh, but one thing I wanted to, to, to ask you about. So we're talking about the proliferation of machine learning, AI, and automation in industry, of course, in military. And one of the, the challenges is ethics, right? Yes. Of course, the ethics that a machine, the decisions a machine would make, uh, you know, how do you program uh, the thought that humans use in terms of loss of life, in terms of other, you know, uh, mis inequities, if you will. How do you program that? How do you, how does the military look at implementing some sort of data science or machine learning protocol to, to emphasize or, um, or to focus on ethics when making decisions uh, when it comes to machines and machine learning? Thanks for the question. I am of the view that uh, getting the machines to learn properly is a more a function of getting the humans to learn properly. So the machines can emulate the decisions we would make and can predict the decisions we would make also if we have thought through what decision we would make. When it comes to these types of things, we haven't thought it through. Our ethics are, in my view, upside down when it comes to how machines can engage in actions. I'll give you some, some first-hand examples. My last assignment as a major was in the Pentagon. I wanted it to be inside of a unit. It was, then I got pulled out of it and came to the Pentagon. And in my portfolio, I was called a system integrator. I meant I was responsible for a particular program line and getting it integrated into the force for utilization. Night vision and directed energy was one of those for me. I'm an infantry officer, but we had an interest in that. And so it was in the infantry branch field that we uh, had this role. And we discovered as we were advancing the technology to the point where we could be precise with lasers that would scar optics in an enemy tank, for example, or in binoculars, we ran afoul of ethics 
1995, viewing that that was inhumane because it could cause blindness. So it's okay for me to put a tungsten projectile through the side of that tank and cause much of their body to be sucked out the other side in small pieces. That's okay. But for them to be blind looking into a monocle is not okay. I think that's upside down ethics. That's not logical. And we still struggle with the same issue with directed energy even today. Robotics, another application that can certainly be used for military purposes. When is it okay for that same robot that we deployed to clear the uh, explosive that was in front of us, that same robot we had tested with putting autonomous weapons on it or human controlled with machine interface weapons like machine guns. Wouldn't it be better to assault a trench and put a robot inside of it and have it work its way down the trench while your joy's sticking in the back? It's a different kind of courage required for that. The robot has to be pretty courageous. But that was unethical because the human had to be the one who pulled the trigger. So it's okay for two humans to kill each other in close proximity, but it's not okay for a robot to use the same weapon to kill somebody by themselves. That's illogical. So I have a problem with the human logic that would then go into the machine. As a result, it has not gone in the machine. Let's get our own thinking straight first, and then the technology will follow. Unfortunately, uh, we're at the end of our time, but I'd like to give you some time for some closing remarks. Well, I, I won't give any long closing remarks. I just want to thank you once again, Bob, for, for what you've done, what you're doing, and for uh, leading this panel today. Thanks, everyone, for turning out as well. And I hope that that uh, caused you to think differently about what it is we're undertaking here at Bayer every year and what happens in between each Bayer as well. So thank you very much, and God bless all of you. Thank you for listening to Lessons in Leadership, Four Stars, America STEM 2020, a professional development seminar featuring Vice President of Public Sector Strategy for Worldwide Technology Incorporated, retired Lieutenant General Robert Farrell, and Director of the Gary Sinise Foundation, retired General Vincent K. Brooks. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.